Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. This is episode 85. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, man, it's been a lot going on this week, man. News cycles are just constant, and I know you've been traveling, so how's how's Where's your destination now? Have you made it back home? Uh, how, how's the week been? Yeah, I went down to uh, Laredo, Texas this week, but I'm back now and uh, ready to get into the show, Josh. It, a lot of lot of crazy, stupid news this week, but we do have some mm. news. And reminder, there is no show next week, so we won't we will not have a show next week. So this will be our last one before Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving! Hope you have safe travels and a uh, good time with your family um, next week. Yeah, Ryan, the news has uh, has not been has not been you know the most exciting news with some of the the politics uh, that's been coming in. Before I jump in, Ryan, I wanted to make a note that um, we we had a couple of written reviews that have been kind of shuffling around on us, but there are two actually that came up. Uh, I mean, here, I mean, I think in the last twelve hours, mm-hmm. uh, one was from a guy named B. Landit or Lant. Mm-hmm. Yeehaw, love the podcast, great content, great guests. Ryan even met with us, OU Law and Norman, to help us get our Student Society's Energy Podcast up and running. It's coming soon. Thanks for making your show fun and informative. I quote you every week. Sound knowledgeable. Hey, we're the, we're the guys to quote, bud. And then uh, and then we have uh, Matt Carcer. Uh, he said he installed iTunes just to leave this review. The banner between Josh and Ryan is the best, but the content is great, too. As someone with an interest in Texas oil and gas this podcast keeps me on what's going on locally so two great reviews really appreciate it guys um really appreciate you installing itunes just to put that review in man so hopefully yeah. we can uh hopefully you win something something special for it and, and i can say josh i know you can't say this but i can actually say i know both of these uh these people uh i've met one as as he pointed out and the other ones i've talked to extensively online it would be nice if you would connect with the listeners like i have josh it, it, it means more to them as you can see um but thank you for installing itunes i know who that is he didn't leave his name so i'm not gonna say his name but you know who you are so thank you for that as for the drawing josh you are right it is that week. Now, this is for the wine basket, and so if you are in driving distance, and I'm about to call your name, hit me up on LinkedIn, um, and you can, you'll be a winner. And so um, the winner for this week is Halcon Black. Halcon Black. So uh, 318-599-9192. That number's in the show notes, so you can click on it there. Shoot me a text um, on the hotline. And let me know if you are Halcon Black. You have won the wine basket. If for some reason Halcon Black is outside of the radius for this drawing, um, we will um, draw again when we come back on the 30th. But other than that, Josh, we will be drawing on on December 14th, which is our end of the year show. So December the 14th is our last show of the year. We will draw the last gift basket, which is sitting across away from here, and the... Um, the trip to the VIP tour, rather, to the Roddy Strong Vineyards. And, Josh, I forgot to mention to you, yeah, I met with the guy, uh, Ryan Clark, to pick up the baskets the other day, and he gave me six bottles of wine. Um, it's a shame that you're not nearby. I can't give them to you. You're just outside the radius. So thanks thanks for the <laughs> thanks for the wine, uh, Rodney <laughs> Strong. It's, it's a shame. I'm tore up that Josh can't get any of it. 
Yeah, well, don't tell my wife you kept wine from the house. <laughs> it won't go good on you, man. Well, you know, 2019 run, I think a uh, year we might be able to get some changes in and uh, might be able to get a little bit more involvement from, from my side, relocation is going on. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to get in and meet some more of our guests and uh, hopefully uh, mooch some more of that wine off of you. Don't Let's not disappoint them, Josh. Let's not. Let's, they don't know. <laughs> Leave it as it is. <laughs> Well, you know, we mentioned some of the stories that came out, especially some of the uh, the negative stories. We have one that came out. Uh, it's a Bloomberg article. Democrats plan to revive House Climate Committee. Democrats plan to revive House Climate Committee. Anyone has followed the news, um, Republicans gained the majority in the House back in 2011 and disbanded this committee. It was in place for quite some time, uh, and apparently... Uh, now the Democrats has a majority. They're wanting to reinstate this uh, this committee to put more sanctions and uh, stipulations on the industry. So overall, Ryan, how'd you feel about the article? Well, it's a, I mean, one clarification: they really can't do anything, but they can try to do things. So it's a, it's a slight slight discrepancy there. They're they're not really going to be authorized um, to advance his own bills, uh, but they can conduct hearings and. You know, it can be used as kind of a mouthpiece for the Democrats to uh, talk about climate change. Um, so a couple things here. I won't spend a lot of time on this, Josh, but, you know, last week we talked about the elections. You said, well, you don't really know what's going to happen and, you know, uh, small elections. And you might see some rogue congressman or congresswoman from some county that you hadn't heard of try to stir up um, something maybe locally. Or, but here, here's one example. Um, I, I'll, I'll just say this. I posted a link to a podcast called Contra Krugman on my LinkedIn and in this report, it talks about the dire United Nations report. Um, a couple things. One, the United Nations, and I'm going to get all these names wrong. Go listen to this podcast. You can get the details there. The United Nations refers to a report by the guy who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, except for the United Nations report differs with what he said. And what he said, I don't agree with either necessarily, but what he said is at least has some rational rational um, thought process to it on some level. And so a piece like this, to me, it's it's really, it's, it's like, this is why, you know, we're going to talk about the Port of Corpus Christi here in a little bit and how they don't have funding, they don't have money, is because we do stupid stuff like this. So um, it, it's, it's, it's posturing, everyone knows it's posturing, the Democrats know it's posturing, Republicans know it's posturing, and it is a waste of the money. We're going to talk about jobs, people <laughs> needing jobs. We talk about all these problems we have in our country. Um... And they tax your money, and they use it for silly stuff like this, and it's a shame. And final thing, Josh, I saw what I forgot here. On iTunes, in the New and Noteworthy, there is a podcast called Drilled, and it lays out, quote-unquote, the conspiracy um, for oil and gas companies to um, conspire and create climate denial and all kinds of stuff like that. It's in the New and Noteworthy. Josh and I's show has uh, four or five times the ratings and reviews that we've never appeared in the New and Noteworthy I'll let you figure out why, but but hey, leave us a rating and review because you know we're trying to get publicity when you got crazy stuff out there like that. But um, anyways, yeah, it this is what is grandstanding, Josh, and it's just a shame. But Contra Krugman podcast is on my LinkedIn if you want to hear more about the UN article. Also, final thing on this, um, there was a report come out this week that the scientists may have slightly slightly missed the mark on how much the oceans are rising. Shocker, because they've never missed the mark on any of that stuff ever. I'm kidding, of course. They always miss the mark on their modeling, so no surprise there. Well, you know, Ryan, the, one of the things that, um, that I look at, and, and I try to 
at least uh, have some sort of a fair-minded, logical view of some of the arguments that are being made from both sides. And, and I just, for the life of me, I can't, I can't see where the, the climate, the people that are, that are arguing climate change, which is obvious that climate change is definitely something that happens, but there's a, sure. a there's questions of how much humans have impact um, on, on the climate. I mean, what, what is the impact that, you know, the, the fossil fuels that we use, how much does that cause the ocean to rise during this as opposed to what it would arise if there were no use of fossil fuels. And it seems like nobody is really asking that question in a way in which they're actually taking it seriously. They're just saying that the ocean rose over the past 100 or 200 years since the Industrial Revolution by X inches or X centimeters. And nobody is... is like, uh, there was a something I read once where uh, it was back in the 12, 12 or 1300s, there was this city that was growing um, different kinds of, of like grapes and things growing in an area yep. that is frozen basically right now. Right. And it indicated that the that will require a temperature, a global temperature, to be something like what we're at right now. It it will require something of, of that of that sort. Because uh, it's just at this point right now, it's just coming to the the point where they're gonna be able to start growing something like that now. It took you know almost a thousand years for that cycle to go through, and that question that I don't think people are taking seriously. They're just looking at the past two hundred years, but they're not really looking at history and finding some instances like that. So, um, you know, I, I just there was a another guy I saw that came on that said that you know companies that go in and support some of this receive a lot of federal funding, and, mm-hmm. and money is a money is a is a big motivator for people to ascribe to this view or that view because Ryan just put this out there if uh, if the Democratic or, or whoever were to offer us you know uh, a couple million dollars to, to to support the that view then you know there might be a conflict of conscience <laughs> going on on my part um, you know what I'm saying so I, yeah. it, it's at some level I think that that people ignore the fact there was a that UN article that's quoted in there. They're supposed to be investing what is it? What two point four trillion dollars to right. shift their use of fossil fuels? Well, that's two point four trillion reasons to ascribe some of this stuff if you can get into gravy. Oh yeah. Now a couple things there, Josh. First off, you are dead right about that, and I don't know if it's the same story or not. But during the plague, um, uh, bubonic plague, there were rats. I think it was the rats. They were bringing down from um, a vineyard. And now that vineyard is too cold to be used. So you, that, that may be a different story, maybe the same story, I don't know. But um, there, there was um, some trade that was coming from northern England, um, and now it's too cold to do it there. And that all happened pre-Industrial Revolution. So you're dead on right there. History, if you go back and just read history, you can pick up on subtle things like this. They're not talking about climate change because that's not in their mind. But you can pick up, oh, wait, hold on, this used to be like this or this used to be like that. That's weird. When did that change? And you can go track that back and you will find that some of the stuff has happened before. I think to your point, um, when we talk about modeling, it should be clear that it's not that Josh and I are anti-modeling. It's that you got to prove the model. So in oil and gas, they're, they're running models on how to build pipelines across, you know, um, these spanses that they've never done before, or how to drill these wells. But what do they do? They go and they try it out. And then if it works, the model's proven right. And if they don't work, the model's proven wrong. When we're talking about climate change, um, first off, you hear this saying like uh, global temperature. Well, that means nothing. There is no global temperature of the Earth. The temperature varies depending on where you're at. But um, you talk about the sea levels. Well, who was measuring accurately 
on any real scale the sea level in 1522? The answer is no one. Okay, so you cannot go back and say um, with any real certainty where the sea level is. What you could do is something like I just described, which is go back and read history and see what nuggets you might can pick up. But that's not the same level of accuracy as we're talking about today. You know, so it's one thing to say, well, the, the, we know the sea used to come up to here um, because in 1527 someone made a mention of it, but we don't know when it went away. We just know it's gone today because we started measuring it in you know, 1920, 1930, 1940, whatever. So those are fundamentally different ways to look at things. Um, and, and so when you talk about climate change, it goes back to what I remember. When we talked early on on this podcast, we had a listener email question in about um, you know, how all the oil got in the ground and abiotic oil and all those things. And one of the things we said then, Josh, is there is no way to prove any of that. There's no way to prove at this current time how the oil got in the ground. You can have a theory, you can have a thought, you can put together a model, but at the end of the day, you cannot prove it. You cannot prove it. It's unprovable because you'd have to replicate what you're modeling to see if it would actually work. And that's the same thing with these climate change models. They put out these predictions, and the variables can be um, changed slightly and have sl- um, a lot of different ramifications on how the model, um, re- the results come out. And so when you look at all this stuff, it's not Josh and I are saying, like you said, Josh, not say that climate doesn't change. Of course it changes. The question is, is what causes it and what can be done to prevent it, and how do we re- react to it? Final point is, if you think want to talk to someone about climate change and they're really concerned i always encourage them to go down to maybe south america uh maybe the mojave desert go to somewhere where where there is no human interaction with the wilderness and just go live there for three to four months and then come back and let's talk about how we have to deal with nature nature is not naturally kind to us there are poisonous snakes and uh, spiders, and there's rats that will come eat our stuff, and there's vines that that uh, uh, will wrap up your house, and um, there's you know poisonous flowers. There's all kinds of things that hurt us in nature, and we seem to forget that. So we have to, I hate to say battle nature, but we do have to take dominion over it in a sense. Yeah, you know, Ryan, uh, this is my, one of my final thoughts on it. I, I'm looking at the looking at the publicity this is about to get in uh, in the media and. Uh, from definitely the political aspects, the political motive uh, posturing that's going to be happening, really probably on both sides. Um, I think it's it's important to to note that uh, with with all of this, me and you, we we uh, I guess I'll speak for myself, Ryan. I am all for trying to figure out ways to to improve the the energy production, develop more clean energy. But like you said. There's a process that we have to go through, and we have to realize that the oil and gas and, and, and these sources of energy that we currently have, they're necessary stepping stones to get wherever we're going to go, and we have to embrace that. And I'm, I'm all for um, you know, trying to improve and, and become more efficient and, and find uh, ways to, to do better. And, and you know, there are all sorts of possibilities out there of ways we can hold different forms of energy from different sources. But the only way we're going to figure that out is by uh, embracing full on uh, the energy that we have now and using that. I mean, you look at the Apple uh, that they built that thing that's supposedly running on completely completely uh, clean energy. The money for them to do that is so lopsided in the amount of money they're saving and the energy they're producing compared to the dollar uh, that they put in. That it's just realistic to expect that to to be a city's goal in the near future. I mean, there's just no way. So, um, but that being 
said, Ryan, I'm all for trying to develop clean energy. I'm all for that. Uh, and, and that's the thing. When people hear someone that kind of questions some of these statistics, they think, well, they really, they're not really caring about the environment. Well, we, we are. We just we also care about people. And, uh, you know, the environment kills people every day. I mean, there are people that have access to technology. They have no idea that a hurricane's coming and they get bulldozed and uh, and they have no way of, you know, trans- transportation to get away. All that, all that saves lives on a daily basis. Yeah. Dirty drinking water or, Josh, you got to have, you know, as, as we said on the show, you know, we're having our fourth child. It's a little girl and we're excited in April but imagine if our hospital didn't have the power or the plastics or the things to that life-saving care if the un, un, unforeseen events might happen when the baby's born um the plastics in the hospital and the power and all that stuff come from oil and gas so we should be very proud anyways let's let's get on to other things josh because we can talk about this all day i know i'm sure the listeners have heard enough climate change for today there we go all right well uh there's a, a julian info um came out with a, a report. It's a 12-page 12 12 page report. The title of the report is Global Crude Oil Supply and Demand. Um, this thing had quite a bit of information. I mean, uh, the, the graphs in it, one of them, I think, was the Global Supply and Demand Outlook. It goes back to January of 2014, and it deals um, all the way to October of 2018, a kind of a four-year span, and it shows you um, – it starts off where they have oversupply and the uh, oil is, you know, $100 a barrel. And then it starts to drop in 2015 and it gets all the way to the point following continuing uh, inventory builds. And then there starts to be the supply outages and the OPEC starts, uh, stuff starts to happen around the beginning of 2017, which I believe is around the time we started this podcast, a little bit before then, I believe. And, uh, and then it goes all the way till, you know, today basically so um that that one graph that tells you know stories and i think is very informative um great great report here ron yeah it's very detailed and you know one of the interesting takeaways and david blackman also has a piece that we're kind of coupling with this talking about that no one's talking his piece mentions that no one's talking about a hundred dollar oil anymore and um it seems that according to the takeaway here on the next last page of this report um let's see here it says, uh, however, it is clear that the, decli- that the decline profile of shell production will lead to a slowdown in supply in the early 2020s, should there not be additional investment made long-term so world supply. So kind of some of the same stuff we said, but the other thing he said, they said, is based on current IEA demand growth expectations and current supply dyna- dynamics, there is a risk of sustained oversupply through 2023. So you kind of have this thing that's saying, okay, well, you got to have, uh, you know, this reinvestment in Shell to keep it going. And on the flip side, we feel there's there's a potential to have um, an oversupply through 2023. All that being said, um, OPEC this week has talked about cutting somewhere in the neighborhood about a million barrels a day off the market, maybe as many as 1.4 million. So they are reacting to the prices falling. They are reacting to the prices dropping, um, uh, the, the supply rising and the prices falling, rather. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. Um, but for Drilling Info to come out and say this stuff, you, you got to kind of take it seriously because um, Drilling Info sells to oil and gas companies, right? That is their market. So if anything, you would expect a company like this to be uh, a little bit more bullish than others. Um, so when they come out with the bearish report, 
to me, it doesn't mean they're right, but it means I need to read it with a little bit more caution because um, it would behoove them. You're talking about those conflict of interest. It would behoove them to kind of spin everything rosy. So, it, you know, if, if they're coming out kind of against their own interest, uh, then you got to go, okay, huh, that's interesting here. And they're not saying the world's going to, the, the price is going to fall off or anything like that. But it was interesting that they, they, they um, that sustained oversupply through 2023 um, could be going on here. And so, It'd be interesting to see, Josh. I don't know. Obviously, as we say, it's the demand. The demand side of everything dictates this. If demand blows up, then all this goes away. If demand slows down, we have a global recession, then obviously the bottom will fall out. But it was an interesting report, and um, just like David Blackman said at the end of his piece, he said, um, quote, all of this which helps to illustrate the original point, if Saudi Arabia and Russia don't know where the price of crude oil is headed, who really does? That explains why no one is talking about a return to $100 oil today. And he's right. No one really knows where the price is going. Um, we try to read all these factors and speculate, but at the end of the day, we're all, <laughs> we're all kind of sitting here scratching our heads, going, "Okay, I think this, I think that," and uh, it makes you makes you wrong a lot of, a lot of the time. Yeah, I you know, one of his points here. Um, he, he made an interesting point. He says, in the past twelve months, the latest EIA numbers are to be believed. Overall, U.S. crude production has risen by a somewhat astonishing two million barrels per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, advancing technologies and then he says this a res a reasonable person a year ago might have predicted that the u.s industry would be able to achieve half of that overall increase his point is a year you know uh, if you go back to 2016 nobody would have predicted 2017 mm-hmm. like it wasn't in the it wasn't even in the it, it nowhere nowhere in anybody's imagination believe that uh, the production would have gotten as high as it did and so that's the point i think he's making and you're making is that nobody really knows and, and i mean you it doesn't take a lot to shift this in a major way. So, um, but again, to your point, drilling info doesn't come out and say this without, I think, fine, re-verifying and, and um, looking over this information because, like you said, it would it would behoove them to to make this you know a little bit more optimistic. But, uh, right, and they're and, and they're not saying this. So we're clear. We're not, they're not saying the sky is falling and prices are going to hit thirty. They're just also not saying, hey, this thing is going to go and, and bust through the ceiling at a hundred. And that's hard to cut you off, Josh. But a couple things here. One, if OPEC cuts and Venezuela slows down and Iran, you know, slows down, and um, you know, you got all these factors that people are trying to put together, and it just makes it so hard. But um, but but anyways, I, yeah. I don't. I just want to make sure we're being clear. I don't take from the drilling info report that hey, get it out of the oil and gas business. They're not saying that, but they are no, saying no, no. hey, it's, it's it's not going to keep going and going and going. Um, we are going to see a correction. And Ellen on the Energy Week podcast a few weeks ago, she had theorized that there was a slight over uh, the the price was inflated about five to ten dollars. I think it was five dollars. She said, and so that she wasn't surprised when when this correction came, um, and she turned out to be right. Yeah, and you know, it, and and this is uh, in some ways could be could be a good thing instead of it getting all the way up to a hundred, mm-hmm. uh, and then it, and then it being corrected, then it could have been a pretty big correction. So, right, uh, we thought we we want it to be you know in between that fifty and sixty. I think if we can stay there and drop down into the low forties, you know, I think that's overall just more stable, um, stable for the market. You know, there was a, another article that came out, Ryan, Dallas News, mm-hmm. uh, and. Not too sure about this article, but it was something that I at least wanted to mention. It says, without enough oil workers, thousands of Permian Basin wells may sit either 2019. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure about uh, some of the things that are in the article, Ryan, but but what they're saying is there could be possibly be a shortage of, of workers. Um, 
to a pipeline shortage that slowed the output that when all these come on that there may not be enough uh, enough workers to come in and and man them right um that has not been a issue for the oil and gas industry in 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 history very often has it well yeah so yeah let's kind of break it down like this so right now we have the pipeline issue and that's that's causing a lot of these wells to not be completed and so ducks drill but uncompleted okay now they're saying that there's 3722 ducks right now um, and when the pipelines open, and this is part of this pricing deal, when the pipelines are built, in theory, let's say in theory, if you could turn on these 3,722 wells, you could then, you know, potentially, depending on how many barrels you're bringing on the market, you know, drop the price a little bit. What they're theorizing is that there's not enough workers to finish these wells out, um, and open, and so these, 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 um, these wells can come on when the pipelines are in service. Now, I, you know, I don't know. I've heard there's a shortage of, there's obviously when prices go up and there's a demand, there's always a shortage in the business. The question is, is how much is that shortage um, real and how much is it artificial? And so what I mean by that is, is how much is it where um, companies actually have the capital and they are sitting there and they cannot do anything because they don't have manpower or how much of it is, well, we want to do something, and if we had the manpower, then we would do it. Those are similar, but they're not exactly the same. One is you're you're sitting there with the equipment, and you're just losing money because you cannot drill a well or you cannot do whatever. Um, the other is you could expand your business and make more money. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I will say this. I do think there is some pushback on the industry here. And I think that it's, it's, it's rightfully so. The industry has a history of cutting a lot of jobs and you know making high profit margins, which we're capitalists. We're not against that. Um, and then when the market corrects or slows down, the industry all of a sudden begins mass layoffs. And as on, on the vendor side of this business, we know all about this. Um, you know, we, we we get cut and we have to cut people. And so the industry is going to have to figure out a way to make people feel comfortable about how they can survive long term. And right now, if you're trying to recruit a 19, 20, 21 year old kid and you're in only gas, um, everyone knows it's, it's kind of volatile or it has been historically. Well, you can go to tech. Well, if you're in tech, I mean, I'm not saying that tech won't have its own crash. It's had its own crash before, but but you kind of feel safe, right? Because if you're in technology, you can work for Apple or Google or for some small startup you never heard of. You kind of feel like you can almost always find a job. And only gas, because of the way that we kind of work, if you're an upstream person or a midstream person or a downstream person, then you kind of are stuck. And, you know, when you're part of the industry is kind of um, under siege, if you will, you kind of feel like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep working? And um, you go from making really good money to no money and then you got to find a job that intermediate that's stable, like this guy in this article. He's a, a deputy sheriff or police officer or whatever. Um, you know, and you feel like, okay, you know what? I lost a bunch of money, but I'm getting a paycheck every other Friday. And what that probably means, Josh, and I don't speak into this gentleman here because I have no idea. What that probably means is you probably had to sell a house. You probably had to sell a car. You probably had to, um, you know, cut that, cut, the, cut that vacation that you had, maybe get rid of the boat. And doing all of those things going from making a lot of money to having a stable job, you go through all that pain, then when the job comes back, you might not really want to do it anymore because you know the hurt and the pain associated with all those things that you lost. Um, going through that process, wondering if you can pay your bills. Maybe your house was a threat of foreclosure. So the industry 
there's no right solution. Okay, I'm not saying that they should keep people on or they shouldn't keep people on, but the industry is going to have to figure out how to respond to these crises differently um, if they want to have a robust workforce um, on hand at all times, or they're just going to have to say, you know what, we cannot respond like we'd like to um, because we cannot keep this workforce in place. So I don't know how all that shakes out. It's a natural function of how the industry is operated, and I'm not criticizing anyone here, but I sympathize I sympathize with uh, with with the with the people who've lost their jobs. They've gone through all that heartache. We've had to lay people off. It's the worst thing in the world. And I can understand them not wanting to come back in the oil and gas because, you know, you can't pay your house note. And it's not when you're laying people off, Josh, as you know, it's not like, well, um, company X laid me off, and I'm gonna go to company Y. Company Y is not hiring neither. It's no none of the companies are hiring. And so you're in a spot to where what you do is no longer a hireable position, and that's a scary spot to be in. Mm, yeah, that is. That's tough, man. And that's something that you see in this industry. Uh, it, yeah, I, I've, I've seen it several times where people, you know, they have a new truck, uh, car, uh, vehicle, boat, and things are just going great, and all of a sudden, boom, uh, you know, and they, they end up taking a hit. So it's, it's definitely one of the challenges. But I also think that uh, with proper with proper budgeting and things, there's a lot of things that people could do because of how good the money is when it's good. Uh, that there sure. could possibly be ways to think about that uh, ahead of time and and manage things. I'm not saying that it would alleviate the problem, but I think it would at least um, give a to to help get through some of those difficult times. Yeah. Well, you know, right? No, no I would say I say you're dead on there. Man, money management is part of the problem from the employee side, um, and, and not knowing how their skills translate from one one part of the business to another, um, and, and because like you know, when David was on whatever that was a week or two ago, we talked about you know how where I work at um, when the industry started going a downturn, it didn't really impact us the first year because we're in midstream. That's when we do upstream stuff, but midstream is a main portion of our business. The second and third year, when the midstream started to tail off and the upstream kind of was starting to pick back up, we felt it the worst because that's when no one was building new pipelines. Um, and so, you know, we weren't positioned properly to be able to kind of handle that. Um, hopefully we, we've, we've learned our lesson. But I, but it is, it's a hard thing because there's a balance of responsibility and you're trying to keep your money, you know, you, you know, you're traveling, which, which is incentivized the spending. So it's, it's really complicated. Um, obviously better money management on all sides would help things. Um, but the final thing I'll say is that don't, I think you should take this article and say, Hey, that, you know what, next year, unless the prices fall out, which does not seem to be the case. There's no, there's no clear path to get there at this point. Um, there's gonna be a lot of money to be made for people, as you mentioned, Josh, because, uh, if they have all these wells they want to get finished, they want to hook them up and stuff, and there's money on the table, then you can bet these companies are going to pay. So that is the positive side of this article, uh, article is that if what they're saying is true, there's a shortage, and these companies continue the historic practices, then this time next year, or uh, June or July next year, rather, they're going to be willing to pay premium dollar to um, to get you out there and to do these services. So keep that in mind because that is the, the, um, the silver lining in this piece. Yeah, yeah, there's jobs. And that's uh, that's definitely definitely a huge piece. Well, Ryan, you know we have the um, Texas Roundup where we try to pull together some information, some you know different mergers, acquisitions, or, or updates on stuff like the Port of Corpus Christi. Uh, we we've talked about this port it seems till we're blue in the face, and uh, news came out this week that there are going to be further delays on this port because they are, are waiting for 
the uh, the government to to pay uh, their you know their projected share of you know, the dredges on on digging some digging some more of the, these uh, these channels out. So it looks like uh, let me see where they say the delay caused by the slowdown in federal funding involves the proposed 75 foot depth dredging from the Harbor Island to the La Quinta Ship Channel and the 54 foot dredging from Harbor Island to the Inner Harbor of Corpus Christi. Government has an obligation. Uh, to two-thirds of the cost, and we're going to wait. So they're waiting for government. Um, and this is where articles like this, Ryan, make me want to you know, get behind Trafigura to get in there and, and show them how it's done, man. I read these articles. I get so frustrated with, uh, with the reliance that we have on the government there, and um, there's got to be a better way, man. Yep, and, we, and, and again, we're pro-port. We're pro-port. We, we want this deal done. It's just frustrating that we can't get it done. I know it's it's uh, it's something, and then so we got another one. Elevate Midstream acquires East Texas gas assets. Elevate Midstream Partners, full service midstream company headquartered in Houston, Texas, announced the acquisition of Woodland Midstream Partners and the assets of uh, Orion Pipeline. I think that's Orion. It could be Orion, but I think it's Orion Pipeline LLC. Uh, so it's a Houston company there that is got some acquisitions going on. Last Ryan, this is I think was a pretty uh, a pretty Pretty noteworthy article. Uh, Chenier starts LNG production at Texas Export Terminal. So LNG uh, production began Wednesday at Chenier's Energy Export Terminal, uh, and they are preparing the ship's first cargo. Or they're preparing the ship their first cargo, uh, a spokesman said. So uh, Chenier uh, starts their LNG production at that uh, Texas Export Terminal. So they just kicked it up this week. Well, Ryan, we had a... Uh, a message come in it was emailed in i believe and so we reached out to an expert in the, in the industry a good friend will Merritt. he is the director of survey is that right will at r square global yes sir hey guys how y'all doing good with doing us. good man doing good well uh will what was the question exactly can you read it to us and then uh give us your take on on how you feel about it what you think the answer is yeah, sure. So a gentleman called in, and uh, he, he had a couple, two parts to the question. Uh, it was three questions total, but the first one was um, he wanted to know, how did you find out if a pipeline was on your property and if it was um, actually in operation? And then two, he wanted to know, um, where is it published that he can go and search the rates that they will pay you um, to come across your property for surface, you know, for surface use, disturbance mm -hmm. and, and such. And wanted to know if that was published to go find, and if the Railroad Commission was the source to find the answers to those two, to those two questions. And then the third question was uh, kind of dealing along the same lines of um, reimbursement to a property owner. He said that uh, he knew that um, you could get paid um, per a measurement, um, increment. So he was thinking, you know, and cubic footage or, you know, uh, MCF gas and wanted to know where that was published so he could find out how you could get paid, uh, per volume of product that was moving through the pipelines on your property. And so with that, I, I think I can tackle them all, um, pretty much from the same source and maybe shed a little bit more light on the actual process. So the first part of the question um, that I wanted to, to uh, answer for the gentleman was, how do you find out if uh, pipelines are functioning that are on your property? So let's take step back uh, one step and say, okay, first off, let's find out if there are you know, pipelines on your property. There are a couple of ways to do that. 
um, you pretty much know the boundaries of your property, generally speaking. Um, you can go onto the Texas Railroad Commission website. They've got a very nice uh, user-friendly interface. You can just Google Texas Railroad Commission or TRRC, uh, Public GIS Viewer. And it'll bring up a page, and then from there you can actually launch the application. opens up in a browser, Chrome, Safari, uh, however you want to use it. And then you can uh, just work your way down um, in the United States to your property. And there'll be a Layers tab over to the left side of the screen. You can open up and make sure that the, the uh, checkbox is clicked on Pipeline so it's showing you Pipelines. Um, predominantly, the Railroad Commission is interested in the um, upstream sector. Now, that, that's, I should say that to clarify that. That's actually what the viewer is going to show by default. It's looking at well paths, surface holes, that sort of thing. But um, as part of the Railroad Commission's um, you know, larger uh, services, that they also track the pipeline. So you turn on the pipeline player. You're looking at your property. Ah, there's a pipeline there. So then you can just mouse over the pipeline, and it'll identify for you the owner and the operator of the pipeline. Now, um, sometimes those two aren't the same. Uh, what you'd be looking for is the operator, but in many cases they'll both be the same. Um, and then it'll also give you an identification number for that pipeline. It's called the T4 permit number, T4. So if you wanted a little bit more information, possibly contact info or know the diameter of the line, what is the product at the line, um, it is uh, that it either at one point the product that it had flowing through it or could be the current product that's flowing through it. Go back to your browser again and do a search, um, Texas Railroad Commission or TRRC T4 permit search. Again, you'll open up a browser and it'll tell you, you know, plug in the T4 permit number and all the goodies uh, about that pipeline when it was, uh, you know, when it was first handed over to the Railroad Commission and then when it was updated and uh, contact information's there, the actual routing uh, is all there. Um, that kind of information. So that's, you know, that's that's kind of the desktop way of finding out who the operator is and what the product is. That really doesn't go to answer the question whether or not the line is abandoned or whether or not it is uh, actually in use underneath the current um, product that's shown there. Now, the Railroad Commission will, some, some pipelines on there, um, especially the more recent, since like 90 no, 2002 or four or something like that. If you click on the line, it'll tell you whether it's in service or if it's abandoned, um, and that's helpful. Um, another, you know, way of trying to find this out is, you know, if if this is a regulated pipeline and, and that regulated comes with a lot of baggage to it on whether what it means under which regulations it's under, but there should be pipeline markers on the property, and those will have contact information for the company on there so that also if you can recall there being a line marker on the line you can go pull that information and give them a, a buzz to find out and the second part of the question um was you know kind of trying to understand or he was really just trying to look for a place he can go and see and how much they would pay him per foot or per rod which is you know 16 and a half feet or whether it was a you know an area-based payment you know square acres square feet um, he wanted to know if there was a place you could go to find that out. And, and in my experience, that is always handled a certain way. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's rarely every owner that a pipeline crosses 
rarely do they all get the same price. It's a negotiation that goes on between the landowner and the pipeline company. So they may give you a range. You may know what your neighbor is asking for. You may know a fair market value by talking to, you know, talking to an attorney that can uh, help you understand the market. But some guys, you know, hypothetically, they can get 200 you know, $200 a foot and your neighbor, he might strike a deal for 180. And so that really is a case by case basis. And, um, a right away agent will kind of be the broker for the pipeline company to help, you know, work through those deals with you. And then, um, so that is a case by case basis. Well, let me cut you off. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let me cut you off real quick there. What do you think about, you know, for landowners, we have a lot of landowners that listen to the show. Um, do you think landowners would be advised to go and get their own representation? Because as we know, the oil and gas company is going to have a, either in-house or a contract representative to go out and to negotiate on their behalf. Is it wise for a landowner to go and get an attorney or their own right-of-way agent um, to represent them in negotiations with an oil and gas company, either for mineral leasing or for pipeline right-of-ways? Yeah, it's a really good question, Ryan. And I honestly, uh, I wish I was in that situation and I could tell you from experience what that's like. <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have any of that, uh, any, any property in that prime area where the pipelines are run through. Um, I would say it really is dependent on how much land you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got a small track, you know, 10 acres or so, and they're just zipping right across it, you know, it, it might be, it might be more uh, cost efficient for you to try to handle it yourself. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about having a substantial amount of property mm-hmm. or they're talking about setting up a lay down yard for pipe, mm-hmm. or they're talking mm-hmm. about putting extra temporary. Yes. I would mm-hmm. certainly say that right. you know, getting, getting outside help. I mean, this is what these guys do and they know, Right. And um, matter of fact, some of the, you know, landowners out in West Texas and the Permian that, you know, hold hundreds of thousands of acres, they're all represented by, you know, by attorneys. And, and they rarely they'll come in and sign the paper. You know, they let they, they have full faith in their attorneys to try to give them the best deal. Right. And so that, you know. Yeah. And, and just on that. that yeah, no, that's great, because there's there's things to consider um, from a pipeline standpoint. Um as well, or a surface, a surface owner. But, you know, if you look at it, one thing, if you're going to represent yourself, I would suggest, and I'm sure you would agree with this, is go to the courthouse, pull other right-of-way agreements, and kind of get familiar with the language. Because now out, out in West Texas, you don't have a lot of big trees. But let's say you're closer to East Texas. Um, you have big trees. They may want to bury the stumps. There's all kinds of construction items that you might not be aware of there. Um, but to your point, um, you are going to pay someone. So you kind of have to find that balance. But these documents that they're, that they're requiring are filed in the courthouse, and you can go and pick them up. Um, and, and kind of read through them to kind of familiarize yourself. But it is kind of like you say, a, a case of do you want to pay someone to do it? Um, but you just need to understand that the, the oil and gas company, they're trying to lay this line uh, quickly and efficiently. And it's, I, I can't think of any case where I've seen them deliberately trying to um, screw someone over. But the landowner sometimes feels that way because they didn't fully understand what they were getting themselves into as far as, like, you're talking about laydown yards or extra temporary workspace or, um, or you know, reseeding, things like access. that. So, they're, 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 yeah, access roads. So um, those are all those kind of things that you might consider if you are a landowner. Um, you might want to seek representation um, just to get someone to kind of look at it. Um, you could find a, a right-of-way agent would be kind of um, – I don't want to say the lower in the food chain because there's very skilled right-of-way agents. An attorney obviously is uh, more pricey, so you got to kind of figure out 
what level representation you might want to have there. Um, so final thing for you, Will, before I let you go here, obviously, um, you know, you guys are staying busy. You got a lot going on. What are some of the things from the, the oil and gas company side that you're seeing as it pertains to right-of-ways or if we're drilling um, out in the Permian? What are some of the issues that, that you're coming across and that you're trying to uh, you're trying to solve? Well, obviously, it you know, it's the congestion that everyone's talking about where you've got a lot more product coming up that you can, than you can actually ship out. Um, there, there's a, a rush, an absolute rush in the field for people to, for pipeline companies to claim these right-of-ways. Um, for, for example, if you're over in New Mexico and you're on state land or BLM land, they're almost going to require that you follow an existing SCAR. And the issue there is you're looking at nine months, uh, well, six to nine months for the state to, you know, finish out your grant so you can begin construction. And you're looking at close to a year with the BLM. And what happens here is because the BLM and the state are so overwhelmed with all these requests coming in is, you know, let's say my pipeline company goes out, my surveyors establish a route and we turn everything in and then you come out and because the cows knocked down the stakes or I wasn't allowed to leave stakes up or for whatever reason, you claim the exact same route that I had or a portion of it because we're, we're both attracted to the same area because of the constraints, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, the lesser prairie chickens habitat, whether it's mating season for the, the Ibernose falcon or just because there's an existing scar there. We're both attracted to the same areas by default. You go in there, you file plat. Uh, on the exact same piece of real estate, and at six months, you and I pull up bulldozers at the same time. Big problem, right? And so that that's that's all stemming from the congestion of uh, there's just so much influx right now of business. And on the upstream side, we're seeing some of the same things, um, actually, because producers are trying to get in there and punch holes in the ground and get to work. But there's so much um, lead time on getting these things filed with the state and with the BLM, and then they change their regulations from time to time as they learn new things about how to protect the land and, and things of that sort. Over in Texas, it's a little different. And the Railroad Commission, just back to the caller's point, is an, an enormous resource for you know pipeline companies because we can see what pipelines are there. We know that if, let's say, your pipeline company You've employed me as your surveyor, and you're you're putting in a 20-inch pipeline. Well, I can look on the Railroad Commission and try to cut down the amount of crossings of, of third-party lines that's possible. And I can also make sure that when we cross that Phillips 66 line that's 48 inches, that we hit it at a 90-degree angle, which would be less exposure uh, length between the two pieces of metal, which causes other issues. So the Railroad Commission has that resource, and it's very helpful. New Mexico does not have that resource, and it makes things more challenging from the field side. Um, and on the service industry part, it's just exploding. Um, a lot of the job creation we see in the market, I mean, I don't know what the percentage would be. I would imagine it's significant as compared to the same category in the recent years, and I'd be interested to know in the sur in, in, sur in oil and gas services – what the uptick has been in jobs created because of new companies being hired mm -hmm. as to that in 2014, 15, mm -hmm. that'd be an interesting statistic. Yeah. It's one of those um, statistics yeah, we talked about. Yeah. We talked about on the show. The problem is the government, the way they measure those metrics are by a very limited category. You know? So like, uh, like our square global right. probably is not going to be included in that, you know? And so you have a lot of these quote unquote Correct. ancillary jobs that are actually directly related to the industry that aren't really being measured. And so, um, it is a definite, um, thing to, t to, to, 
to, that you'd like to track, but it's probably uh, the accurate number is, is really hard to find. On those pipeline crossings, those are costing companies like $40,000. Is that about right? If they miss a pipeline crossing That's and they right. go to construction. So, yeah, finding out any information like That's that right. is critical. Will, if people want to contact you, um, where can they get you at? Um, I, again, director of survey at R Square Global. I have an email address, will.merit at G-O-R, the number two, dot com. I'm also uh, on the website as well and a frequent uh, LinkedIn quite a bit. And other than that, um, you can just, just Google me. I'll pop up somewhere um, and be happy to, to entertain any further questions. Yes, two R's and two T's in Merit, correct? Will.merit.com. At G-O-R, the number two, dot com. Will Merritt, Director of Survey for r Global. Will, thank you for coming on. It was good talking to you. I, well, I talked to you about an hour ago, so it was good talking to you since <laughs> since then. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate one. it, buddy. All right. Well, thanks again for Will Merritt coming on, Director of Survey at r Global. Really appreciate his insights there, Ryan. And uh, last thing before we uh, before we sign off, the drilling info uh, rig count we have. We're at one. 1,167. We're down by five from last week. Overall, um, hanging in there. I mean, it's, it's staying about the same. It's, it's not really up or down very much at all. Yeah, and in the interest of full disclosure, Josh, we've known Will for, for I mean, you've known him longer than I have. I've known him for probably, what, eight, nine years now or something like that. And uh, obviously he works uh, for me at r Global, but we've known him for for a long time. It's good to finally get him on the show. And uh, he's really a funny guy. Too bad he wasn't funny today, so I had to give him a hard time about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, oh, no, no show next week. We will be back um, November 30th recording, so come out the first week of December. And until then, keep climbing. <laughs>